and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we watched Yankee Doodle Dandy, starring Jimmy Cagney, and unfortunately did have blackface in it, despite what we thought last week. Yeah, and like, honestly, I was gonna say least of its problems, but no, a pretty prominent problem, but not its only problem. (laughs) (laughs) The blackface part is not a big part of the movie, but it happens, and it is a... So this movie is one that inspires a lot of conflicting feelings in me, because it is so politically backward (laughs) compared to what we live with today and never addresses any of it. But there is a part of me that finds stuff like the big set piece in one of his musicals where there's a lot of black actors on stage who are actually black and not in blackface in front of the Lincoln Memorial to be very moving. And there are little moments like that where I had that heartstring tugging moment of patriotism. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a biographical film, it turns out, about George M. Cohan, an actual real human being that wrote a lot of jingoistic music. Some of it extremely catchy. And the thing is, it works. And the thing that is weird about this movie is it dedicates so much time to going like, all the critics said that I was just writing patriotic fluff pieces and I had no serious side. So I wrote a big serious play and everyone said it was dog shit because it was. (laughs) Like, why does the movie not be okay being what it is? Like, yeah, he is not Rodgers and Hammerstein. He's not the greatest musical writer in the history of the world, but he is good at this thing. I mean, he basically invented the musical with a story. So yeah, he's not Sondheim, but you know, no one had done that before. So of course it's going to be a little rough. (laughs) Yeah. And what I find strange about this movie, it was not quite the worst musical we've watched, but it was a collection of things we've really disliked in previous musicals. It's got all of the endlessly doing the same song of the Broadway melody of 1928. And the same, this is about a great man, so all of the kind of shitty stuff he did gets hand-waved of Great Ziegfeld. I felt a lot of Great Ziegfeld in this movie, even to the point of completely ripping off, oh, here's like 10 years of his career that we don't really want to deal with, so we'll just do it through various marquees of shows that happened during that time. I will say, though, Nikki had come into the room by that time because we're all in the same room basically all the time because quarantine. Yes. And we both talked about, like, that's maybe the best sequence in the movie, though, because very clearly it's hand animated. Large parts of the frame are not actual signs that are built in the world. Yeah. Because, among other things, they go out and then come back on with a completely different sign instantaneously. Mm -hmm. That whole sequence of shots through Times Square, it does have the same great Ziegfeld problem of just like, and then he played all the hits. A musical you don't remember. Another musical you don't remember. A musical (laughs) with one good song. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, we don't do a whole lot of co-head musicals anymore because they are so dated. Like, for instance, I didn't know Grand Old Flag was his. Yeah. Or Yankee Doodle Dandy. But turns out 
That they were. Actually, I don't even think I knew that Over There was his song. That was the only one that I knew was his, which makes the part where they do the, like, Bohemian Rhapsody-esque, he's noodling around on the piano, desperately trying to find the tune to Over There, which is a song with three notes. (laughs) (laughs) Even more hilarious, because there's, like, three minutes of build-up to him figuring out Over There. Right. Which is a, like... Extremely catchy song, extremely important to American history. I get why it's a big deal in a movie about his life. But maybe don't be like, this is the moment all of his musical genius came to bear. Da-da-da. 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 Like, I... Yeah, fair enough. I, like... (laughs) Yeah, so we should go through the plot... Because within the plot are the moments of things that we don't love about musicals that all seem to find their way into this particular musical. (laughs) Jimmy Cagney plays Cohen, and we start with his literal birth. (laughs) No, we don't. Oh yeah, that's right. We start with the wildest ass framing device I've ever seen in my life. That's true. So we start actually with him finishing up his show. I guess it's opening night or... Previews or something. Like doesn't really matter. Yeah. Cagney is playing Cohen in his advanced age, who has come out of retirement to be in this musical called I'd Rather Be Right, where Cohen is playing FDR and is summoned on opening night after the performance to go to the White House. Which he thinks is happening and makes a big deal about happening because he's impersonating the president and that can get you in a lot of trouble, which doesn't make any sense, but whatever. So he's like, I got a bad feeling about this. And then he goes in and there's an even worse Roosevelt impression than his pretending to actually be FDR within the fiction of this movie. And we still don't know why he's there. What's wild to me is the idea that you would get a telegram from the president saying, I need you to come to the White House, but with no other information. But whatever. Ask for no details. Make an appointment. Here's the other wild thing. Ask for no details. Make an appointment. Sit down with the president. The president goes, I saw you once like 35 years ago. And you go, oh yeah? That reminds me of my entire life story. (laughs) Right. Starting with my literal birth. (laughs) Yeah. So he's born on the 4th of July because of course. And there's a big parade and his dad and his mom they're both vaudevillians so he gets incorporated into the act his sister is born and she also gets incorporated into the act he's kind of a bratty star even before he's a star yeah he's a kid and they're playing somewhere in the sticks and he's in some show and ruins their chance of being in rep at some new philadelphia theater that's opening up because he's like we should be paid more and ends up getting spanked for the first time ever and i guess we're supposed to think that this is going to set him on the road to being a little bit more humble but it doesn't in any way nope (laughs) they go through a series of the four cohans which is what they're family troupe is called of their various performances one of which is of course them in blackface 
Which, it's, it was just such a bizarre and jarring thing, because the song that they were singing didn't seem to have any context for it to be necessary for them to be impersonating black people, or for it to be sung by black people. It was just like, well, make sure and throw the black face in. Yeah, this whole section, the black face is the absolute worst part of it, but the whole section is this salute to vaudeville garbage. That I don't fucking care. I'm kind of okay that we left vaudeville in the garbage heap of history. Like, I don't need a 20-minute segment about ah vaudeville. It feels interminable. It's so long. Then he moves to New York and decides that he's gonna be a big deal showman, and he goes from Tin Pan Alley office to Tin Pan Alley office and keeps getting thrown out. At some point, he meets Joan Leslie in Buffalo, and he's playing this older guy in the show. He's actually playing his mother's father, and he has all this old makeup on and a beard and everything, and Joan Leslie comes backstage, and her name is Mary in this, and says, you know, oh, I'm about to graduate from high school, and I want to go to New York and be an actor, but I don't know if I can do it, and you're so old and wise, and then they have this meet-cute where she realizes that actually he's somewhere closer to her age. It's interesting because that scene where she is playing a teenager and she actually is 17 or 18 in this movie the age difference is very stark because jimmy cagney is like 40 at this point or something (laughs) but as they age because she becomes his wife eventually i was wildly impressed with her because she is a 17 year old who is absolutely pulling off playing 20s 30s 40s 60s She's really a remarkable actress. (laughs) I really thought she and the dad. Oh, yeah. Were sort of my two favorite performances in the movie. Walter Houston is the dad. Yeah. And he's great. Once they meet up and have the meet cute where he lies to her for 10 minutes, which is adorable, of course. He gets kicked out, like basically blacklisted from vaudeville by overruling the owner of the show And having her go out and sing a song he wrote instead that seems fine, whatever. Um, And then we get into the long segment where he is like hustling in New York trying to be a musical writer. And it has that big Zegfeld, like, you'll see, you'll all see, you fucking suckers. And then I was writing at the greatest man ever, and you all suck, energy. Right. He gets kicked out of a bunch of places and eventually finally gets a show by teaming up with a guy who keeps writing overly expensive non-musical plays that he sees when he's getting kicked out of places over and over in actually a pretty clever and fun scene. I love this scene, actually. Yeah. And it's why I have conflicting feelings about this movie, because when it commits to the scrappy, manipulative underdog who's just gonna claw his way into stuff no matter what it takes... It's a much more interesting story than vaudeville was great. When they let Cohan be kind of a dick, it's great. When it's like he's the greatest living American and the embodiment of the American dream, it's like, I please God put me to sleep through this. <laughs> yeah. But they have this great scene where Cohan essentially grifts the other guy whose name I always forget. Sam Harris. Sam Harris 
is trying to pitch this guy a musical about jockeys. Not a musical, it's a play. Right. It's just a play about jockeys. And he's like, and then 80 horses come in. And you're like, dude, I can see why your play is not getting bought. But Cohan comes in and essentially does the old, like, oh man, there's a guy across town that really wants our musical. Let's both go and sign on for that. And they have never worked together. This is all bullshit that Cohen is making up in the moment. They literally don't know each other's name. I don't even know that Harris has noticed that Cohen exists. It's just that they've gotten thrown out of the same Tin Pan Alley producer's offices a couple of times. Right. They essentially con their way into him going like, oh, I rewrote the main song for the musical. And the guy's like, it's a musical? And Harris is like, it's a musical? And Cohen's like, don't mess with the man. Of course it's a musical. And there's 80 dancing girls. And then the guy's like, well, dancing girls, you should have said that. Yeah. And he plays a little bit of Yankee Doodle Dandy for him. And they sign a contract with him and become partners learning each other's name. (laughs) Yes. Which is great. And then we go through 15 full minutes of Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is less great. Oh my god, it is. And also, this is the point where Cohen switches from singing, and when he does the first round of Yankee Doodle Dandy, he actually sings the song like a normal human. And then for all of the performances after that, he does this talk singing thing where it's like, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Do or Die. Yeah. Which apparently was actually how Cohen sang, quote unquote. But it's very jarring because he's never done this before. And there's a lot of tap dancing, which as soon as I saw how much tap dancing was definitely going to be in this movie, I thought, oh God, poor David. <laughs> I, You know, my parents hate tap dancing more than I do. My problem with all of the musical segments in this is that they're all so thoroughly set up that you've heard every good part of every song about three times, and then you're just watching it, like, staged. Are we going to cut to backstage? Why are we wasting this fucking time? And it's like, well, this time there are horses. And a chorus. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, man, I've seen movies that's really impressive on stage on broadway but this is a fucking movie and there are five horses is not gonna buy you 15 minutes and it does feel like every single show that they go through that he wrote they give us a first second and third act number so it does take 10 to 15 minutes per musical yeah and none of them are so complicated i guess that it's necessary to do more than that to get what the gist of the musical is i also don't think we need three full songs (laughs) yeah And I don't love the tap dancing in this, and I hate tap dancing less than you do, but it really was very stark after we've seen movies with incredible tap dancing in them, you know, like Broadway Melody of 19... Was it 1936 that had Eleanor Powell in it? Yeah. Looking at Eleanor Powell or Fred Astaire or Ginger Rogers and their tap dancing ability and then looking at Jimmy Cagney doing Cohan, who apparently they had very similar dancing styles, which is why Cagney was pursued for the project. I, that's... Ugh. <laughs> 
It does not look effortless. It does not even look like he's in any measure of control. Uh, No, it's bad. My point is not that tap dancing was fine. The point is that it was just one of those things where it was like, other than that, Mr. Lincoln, how was the play? Like, I just hated the whole fucking sequence. So the fact that I also hated the tap dancing. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It is just so banking on the spectacle of the thing. Which seems to me like it would work very well on stage, but in a movie, you're like, I've seen better spectacle than this. Like, this is not actually even as good as the spectacle in Great Ziegfeld. Or comparing it to the end of 42nd Street. Right. Christ. Yeah. And Busby Berkeley has been working for decades, for at least a decade at this point in Hollywood. Like, what is there to show that is in this musical that we haven't seen elsewhere? It's at the level of San Francisco as far as performance, and that's not a compliment. (laughs) Yeah. Then we get to... uh, Is it immediately into the whole weird, like, love triangle question mark with the leading lady? That goes nowhere and is not a love triangle. And is in fucking Terminable. He writes a song for Mary called Mary, where the main lyric is about how great the name Mary is and... Don't you dare say Marie, you bastard. (laughs) And she's like, this is the greatest thing anyone's ever done for me. And then he ends up through no fault of his own because he can't do anything wrong now that he's successful. Giving that song to a leading lady he's trying to get for his next show instead and comes home and is like so guilt ridden he proposes, which is a great look. And she's like, yes, I accept. And also, I immediately knew that you did that because I fucking know all your tricks. Right, because you came home with flowers and chocolate. So I knew that you'd given my song away. And I'm fine with it. Then there's the opening night performance. And there's kind of a little thing where he looks over at her to make sure that she's okay that the actress is on stage singing her song. And she says something like, she has the song, but I have the writer. And then takes his hand and you see there's a wedding band on her hand. There's no love triangle. Right. But the actress shows zero interest in him at all. But the windup <laughs> is so like that part in Great Ziegfeld where they're trying to make excuses for the fact that he had an affair that I kept waiting for their overwhelming chemistry or something. You're right. There is nothing there. There was nothing there. Like not in real life. Yeah. It's just this weird sequence where they keep playing up how dangerous it is that he's giving this song to another woman and then nothing comes of it. Similarly, there's a moment he's outside of a theater and the big poster on the side of the theater says, you know, George M. Cohen in a George M. Cohen production written by whatever with songs by George M. Cohen. And this guy comes up and starts talking to him about how Eddie Foy is actually the best guy on Broadway and this Cohen character, who does he think he is? And they have this whole exchange that's actually quite funny where it's very clear that Cohen and Eddie Foy both know that the other one is the person that they're talking about, but they do a lot of trash talking and it's very clever dialogue and it literally never is brought back there's no rivalry that has been put into place it's not the ongoing battle between Cohen and Eddie Foy really the only thing that it seems to offer and I'm not sure that this would have been apparent to audiences at the time but thankfully we have Wikipedia is there is a little easter egg here which is that Eddie Foy Jr. is playing his dad. That seems like the only reason it's in there. 
This whole movie has like real walk hard vibes. There's just a real George M. Cohan needs to think of his whole life before he plays thing to all these segments where there are these interesting flashes of a movie about a guy that figured out how to be a flim flam man made good. But the whole framing device and the whole point of the movie is that we're about to go to war with Hitler and the patriotic songs this man has written are going to inspire us to victory. And so it keeps going. Actually, he was kind of a heel. Actually, he was kind of a shit. Actually, he'd say anything to get his shows run. But really, though, it's about a guy who loved America just so much. And you're like, why? That's so uninteresting. Right. The epitome of that, which is also the best example of, ah, here we are in history since Cavalcade is the sequence where he tries to write a serious play and the serious play is such a disaster, his family all hates it. And he's all bent out of shape about it and it's going to write a big ad about how like the critics all suck and you should all come see my play. <laughs> and then thinks better of it and goes like, actually, you know what? You're right that my play does suck. We apologize heartily. If you'd like to see the last 10 performances of my shitty play, please come do so. No, it actually says don't. Right. <laughs> Which is a great way to get people to come see your play, by the way. Yeah. But they do that and then immediately walk outside and are like, oh, we can't put this ad in the paper. The Lusitania has just been sunk. Right. And then like, like <laughs> we're going to war now. And then he goes up to sign up in person for World War One, And they're like, you're too old. And he's like, I'm too old. I can tap dance. And they're like, that's nothing. Please leave. Actually, they're like, that's nothing, but thank you very much for saving America with the power of music, you sainted fellow. But, like, also, please leave. We need you over here writing songs for everybody. Over here, as opposed to over there. <laughs> and, like, it's one step up from that. And then we see him playing over there at a USO show. And it's fine, and it's fun, and it's a nice sequence, and the song is catchy, because there's three notes. <laughs> but it is a weird segment. It is a weird thing to lean into. This man and this man alone could write this song. <laughs> yeah, the part where he goes out of the recruiting office, and there's a big military parade playing a completely different song, and he goes, da-da-da. looking up at the sky like oh yeah i'm thinking this song through and then he's in a broadway theater on stage with a grand piano but the theater is empty because he just has access to one i guess at any time right (laughs) tapping it out and then to the uso show and that's fine yeah and then the war ends and we have this whole look at every marquee and all the lights of broadway and here are all the shows that he did between the war and whatever and you think we're about to get to the depression really fucking him up but we don't like the movie does not really care about that Nope. Instead, his dad dies in a very sweet callback to the very bad vaudeville portion of the movie. <laughs> like the very first time he was a lead as a little kid. And there's been a previous sequence where Cohan makes his parents co-owners of all of his theaters so that they'll be set for life. And they've sort of been popping up every like 10 to 15 minutes in this weird C plot to the movie. But once the dad dies, he decides he's going to retire and just live on a farm in the Midwest with his wife, which lasts five minutes for the newfangled jazz teens to- You forgot that before that- Fucking millennials and their avocado (laughs) toast. 
Sorry. <laughs> you forgot before that he and Sam dissolve their partnership so that he and Mary can travel the world because they've never had a chance to actually go anywhere because they've been working on Broadway this whole time. Right. And then you have that sequence where I've seen sitcoms that have tried to make you think they shot on location harder than this fucking sequence does. <laughs> They literally never walk or stand for their whole vacation. It's just like, here's a shot of them in a carriage outside of, like, Buckingham Palace. Here's a shot of them in a something else in Paris. Here's a shot of them in a tuk-tuk in Hong Kong? I don't know. And then they come back and live on the farm. And then those millennials who are killing long skirts and... Whatever else 1920s kids killed. And only care about movies and jazz cigarettes. <laughs> Come in. They've never even heard of him. Right. And he, in the movie's defense, it's kind of poking fun at him as much as it's poking fun at the kids by them just instantly going like, who are you? No, we've never heard of any of your music. And he's like, I've been on this farm for four years. And they've been like, really? We've never heard. Maybe we'll ask our mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> He gets all bent out of shape about it, and his wife's like, well, great news, your old business partner needs you to come to New York and play FDR and do a tap dancing sequence that'll definitely age great. <laughs> and he goes, like, I'm not going to do it. And she goes, yes, you are. And he goes, okay, I am. And she goes, that's right, I tricked you. I knew all along you were going to do it. And he goes, well, I double tricked you. I knew all along you knew all along I was going to do it. And it's like, what? That's what? Well, no, he says, I tricked you. I already told Sam that I was in because he called me earlier today and talked to me about it. And she says, well, I double tricked you because I listened in on your phone call, which is all really unnecessary. And I don't understand why it's put in there at all. But whatever it was. Then he goes and we see one number from what seems like a pretty bad FDR musical. It has other problems besides the fact that it has FDR just doing a big tap dance routine which seems an extremely poor taste knowing what we know now it just is whatever but they gotta show it so that he can then go and that just about brings us up to now as you pull back out of the framing device and you go he told fdr all of that that dude's busy with a war and the great depression <laughs> Right. You told him all that shit? What's also totally wild to me is there's no one else in the room. Yeah. There's not an aide. There's not security. Like, I don't know when the Secret Service started, but I'm pretty sure no one ever just left a president alone with some rando. It's a weird sequence. But FDR is like, actually, it's great that you wasted two hours of my life telling me everything that's ever happened to you. Because I'm going to give you the Congressional Medal of Honor for writing so many songs about how war is great. And he goes, really? And FDR's like, yeah, you're the first musician to ever win it. You're the greatest living American. Thank God for you. <laughs> and, like, gives him a medal and tells him to be on his way. And then Jimmy Cagney does a little tap dance down the stairs which is honestly pretty cute. I thought that was the best tapping in the movie. I agree. It's a callback to the extremely problematic thing with the black servant at the very start of the movie. 
that's actually kind of cute. Like, it's this little shared moment between the two of them. And it's like this nice tossed-off casual thing in a movie where Cagney's weird in this movie. (laughs) The movie's got problems of its own, but, like, Cagney feels extremely stiff and forced throughout all of it. Not just the tap dancing, also the acting. Yeah. He's being asked to perform as a real guy, and I get where that's difficult. And the real guy is, like... 80% similar to Cagney and mannerisms, and there's a real way where that's way harder than a guy that's like 2% your mannerisms, you know? But it just feels extremely like, here I am, Jimmy Cagney playing Cohan in like every scene. There's definitely a feeling where it's less that he tried to embrace Cohan as a person And just did his Jimmy Cagney thing every time that he was not on stage as Cohan. Mm -hmm. And then he's imitating his performance mannerisms, but there's no embodiment. It feels like an imitation. Like, I can believe it's not butter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that moment of tap dancing down the stairs is the one moment saying something about this guy through the physicality. That still at his age, he's just got that showman in him. Oh, this is a nice capper. Uh, And then there's the less nice capper of him going outside and there's a military march for no reason. Well, they're getting ready to go to war, I guess. Right. But on the street at like 11 p.m. at night, randomly through Washington, D.C., sure, I guess, whatever. It's really so that they can be playing over there and somebody can be like, what's the matter, old man? Don't you know the words? And he's like, wink, and starts singing the song. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, when did he get the Congressional Medal of Honor? Probably not long before this movie is made. 1940. Okay, so we were not going to war yet, but I guess there were just random military parades at 11 p.m. at night. Sure. Sure, why not? Also, this actually did happen. He did receive the Congressional Gold Medal. But why is the president giving it to him? I mean, I guess, you know, FDR didn't give a damn about separation of powers, so maybe that's why. But shouldn't he be presented that by Congress? My other problem with that is that FDR very specifically says, this is presented by act of Congress. And I'm like, wait, they have to pass this through actual congressional business. How did he not hear about it? Like, within the fiction of this universe. Well, they didn't have C-SPAN. Well, sure, but, like, there were still congressional reporters. That's true. It wasn't like they didn't keep any records of this thing. The real answer is, in real life, he knew about it. This is a thing you know about, but then we can do this framing device of why is FDR calling him to the White House? That, to me, feels invented and silly. This movie has so many other logical problems that I'm not really going to get that hung up on that one. Fair enough. It it just felt weird to me. Yeah, I mean, it is weird. It's just there so that there can be proof of how great he is as a, like, capper to the film. And whatever. (laughs) Yes, whatever. Yeah, so I... What what do we rate this film? That's a great question, Susan. Um, God, what is a movie that's, like, mostly bad but has flashes of brilliance but not at the thing it's trying to do? Three? Three or four? Somewhere in there? Uh, yeah, it's hard because it- Yeah. The things that stand out about this film are not anything that I think it's trying to do. You know, like, Joan Leslie is a phenomenal actress who is playing a 
very, very difficult role for anybody. And she's doing it at the age of 17. But she's not the point, And she's kind of looked over for a lot of the film. Yeah. And like, neither is the flim flam stuff, even though it's really fun. And like, neither is the dad, even though he's really good at driving some emotion and pathos out of what is really a recurring bit part that keeps popping up in the movie. Also, it has blackface. Anywhere from, like, one to four, I can see an argument for, you know? Yeah, I think I think a three yeah. is what I'm coming down on. And I think it's because, I mean, the blackface pulls it down really, really hard. Not that blackface is ever necessary, but again, we've talked about this a million times. There are media properties I've seen where blackface is done in order to give a sense of the political environment of the time and what was permissible but it depends on how you present it if it's presented as like this was a bad shitty thing that we did but it was what happened at the time okay i understand why it was included this was not that at all no what's the dumb line that he says right before the blackface sequence it's like there's no family happier than the family that dances together every day. And then they all just like pop out in blackface and you're like, oh, there are happier families. <laughs> right. Please don't. Please stop. Let's not look at this as some sort of virtuous thing. Yeah. So yeah, that pulls it down pretty hard. And I think on its merits, which is that it is trying to be a big Hollywood spectacle musical while also being a biopic, it's not terribly successful at that. So that's going to pull it down as well. But then there are these moments that are really lovely that pull it up. But I don't think we can get all the way to a four with that. No. Four was just the absolute highest I was willing to go. Three seems fair to me. Two seems equally fair to me, honestly. I feel like it's a two and a half. Yeah. It's like a two and a half. If it weren't for the blackface, it'd be like a three and a half. Yeah. Nah, don't watch this movie. Nah. I would say if what you want is a big, silly Hollywood musical that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Broadway Melody of 1936 is still, as far as what we've watched, that's still my touchstone. It's like, what the hell is even happening in this movie? At some point, I need to go back and watch that film because I do stand by my, this may be Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) That movie put me into a fugue state. I remember the weird opening where the gossip columnists can just take out binoculars and see a full musical number at a society party. But beyond that, I'm like, what even happened in that? There's great dance. What was the plot? What did anyone do at any point in that movie? But also, boy, watch that before you watch this. That movie is a straight up hallucinogenic drug. Oh, yeah. No question. And it is nonsensical. But when they do the musical numbers, they're great. The costumes are great. When they want to do big showy things, it pulls it off. And I think that Hollywood has yet to figure out how to do the musical biopic. Still. Even... Oh, in in 2020, yeah. Oh, I was going to say in 1942, but yeah, probably that too. I thought that was the argument you were going to make, and I was going to wholeheartedly agree that we do not yet have our It Happened One Night for the musical biopic, but they've been trying for 80 years. Yeah, I don't know that I could name one, to be honest. I was thinking more along the lines of they've been trying for six years between Great Zigfield and Yankee Doodle Dandy. But no, you may be right that we're still not there yet. (laughs) There are certainly better ones than this one in the intervening years. 
But honestly, the closest to a Stone Cold classic This Is The Formula is Walk Hard, which is just deconstructing all the ways Hollywood has badly made that genre. It's a satire, (laughs) and that says a lot that that's the best we have. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, next week, what what do we got? Mrs. Miniver, starring Greer Garson, and it is the life of an unassuming British housewife in rural England touched by world war ii well and it's our winner so let's not bury the lead there that is the lens i will be watching this through this is what the academy thinks won at least i mean so far i haven't been real impressed with 1942 so yeah and famously the magnificent ambersons got cut to shit by the studio so our one real ringer may have some problems that aren't really its fault. Maybe it'll be great. Yeah. And until then... This was a biopic that honestly showed you like three full musicals. And if any of those musicals were good, the sheer value proposition would get me to tell you to watch it. But they weren't. Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. I am that Yankee Doodle Boy.